Section 8 of Whispering Tunnels by Stephen Bagby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Part 8. Once inside his office, Papa Dupin locked the door and turned up the flame of the lamp. The three drew their chairs together as the colonel glanced through the documents hurriedly. He uttered a cry of amazement. My friends, he said slowly, the mystery of Fort Vaux's betrayal is solved. Jules Charmont was no traitor, poor fellow, but a hero. He and thirty-three others were sent into eternity by another Frenchman, a traitor, who blew up the fort's magazine from his concealed position in the anteroom. Here, read these. With this, the colonel thrust the thick packet of papers into Little John's hands. The documents included orders, maps, and plans of vital importance to the defense of the garrison. Scrawled on the backs of the documents was a diary kept by Jules Chamon up to the time of his death. On the first document were the lines, In the event that my body and those of the other men are ever found, I pray that these papers will aid in clearing up the manner in which we died. These lines were written in Chamon's bold style, and on the paper the three saw dark stains, doubtless, of blood. June 6, 1917 Caught Debray passing this packet of papers to a known enemy spy. How this fellow got inside of the fort, I do not know. He ran at top speed in the opposite direction when I closed in on Debray and confronted him with the evidence of his treachery. The traitor pleaded with me not to expose him. He groveled on his knees. I shook him off, rat that he is. He has betrayed his country and through him France may lose Verdun, her heart and soul. I went to the Commandant's office this afternoon to expose him, but the Colonel was not there. Must wait until tomorrow. Debray cannot escape. He knows that I am watching. June 7th, 1917 Only the Colonel must hear my story, and this he cannot do this morning, because he is inspecting the trenches outside. Thus does the traitorous Debray gain another day of grace, but what matters this when he cannot escape? He watches me in terror. The Germans are but five hundred meters away. How much information Debray has already given them, I do not know. I must stop. The bugles are blowing like mad. There is an attack. Everybody running to positions. Major Callan is shouting out my name in Debray's. We are to take charge of a detail and go down into the flood vault. June 7, 1917 it is afternoon, and the attack continues. Debray lingered behind. He knew I could not stop to drag him with us. Ah, had I only known his scheme, we should have avoided imprisonment in this dark vault. Debray followed and bolted down the trap after the last man had gone through. We have thrown the flood levers, only to find them sawed from their connecting rods below the vault, where we cannot repair them. The machine is useless. The work of this traitor. Oh, the assassin. He opened the trap a minute ago to tell us to say our prayers, to shout that he means to fire the magazine. He bolted down the trap before any of us could reach him. The papers in my belt. They would incriminate him. June, question mark, 1917. A terrible roar. A frightful shock. The whole fort came tumbling down over our heads hours or days ago. We are buried. All of the poor fellows are either dead or wounded. I am covered with blood and can hardly drag myself over the floor. Dying men are 
moaning and crying for water. There are thousands of gallons of it beneath us, and yet we cannot reach it. There is no food. We are doomed to die like rats. June question mark, 1917. Debray! Traitor! May the curse of dying men rest upon him. I am too weak to move now, and writing is most painful. My matches are giving out. I hope death comes quickly. I've given up hope that we shall ever be found, either by our own men or by the Germans. There is cannonading outside, but here we can only feel a muffled jar. The whole vault seems to tremble. June question mark, 1917. Almost too weak to write. Can only move my hand. No matches. Riding in darkness. Too far gone to get my prayer book under my shoulders. If I could only see the sun shine again. God preserve my dear mother and my sister. Here the messages ended. The last was feebly scrawled, and little John deciphered it with much difficulty. Death had evidently overtaken Jules Chamon shortly after he replaced the packet in his belt. The papers contained damning evidence against Debray. One was a request from the enemy general, Von Mock, for additional information as to the fort's weakest points, and his betrayal yielded Fort Vaux into the enemy's hands an hour after he had fired the magazine. "'For the first time, messieurs,' said the colonel, "'the truth is known. Debray must have racked the floodgate control days before he fired the magazine. He would have blown up the magazine regardless.' of whether Chaumont had discovered his treachery, as part of his bargain to aid the enemy. As it was, he saw a chance to carry out his plan, and at the same time destroy, as he thought, the evidence. I think you will agree with me that the statement, Dead men tell no tales, is one of the most ridiculous ever coined. The colonel reached swiftly for pen and ink, and wrote out a telegram. It was coded in ciphers known only to the French army, but when translated, it called for the arrest of Debray. My friends, said Papa Dupin to the Americans, you have Sir Francois. She owes you an infinite debt of gratitude that she can never repay. But as long as either of you live, there is no favor too great to ask of the French military service, which will ever be at your disposal. Won't you remain a while longer as my guests, now that you have cleared the name of Jules Chamont? The Americans thanked the colonel, but explained that they must return to Paris without further delay. The commandant shook his head disapprovingly, but embraced them both as they left his office. Outside in the corridor, Cresson experienced a feeling of relief over the prospect of leaving behind this labyrinth of mystery and death. He shivered as he took a long look inside of the haunted chamber. Our discoveries show us why there happened to be a number of apparitions in this room simultaneously, said Little John sagely. The anteroom in olden days must have been an altar for devil worship, for the strongest forces issued there. That trap door leading to the tunnels must indeed hold a dreadful history. There are hundreds of entities that still rove the distant tunnels, but so far as Vaux is concerned, the malignant curse is gone. The fort was built over ancient underground dungeons where hundreds were put to torture for sorcery up to a hundred years ago. Many were the curses placed upon the whole region, and some, as you have seen, are still active. "'Don't talk about it, doctor,' pleaded the younger man. "'I'm getting all unnerved. Let's get out of these hills.' 
Little John laughed, noticing Crescent's expression of anxiety. Do you know what day this is? asked the scientist. September 7th, of course, replied Cresson. He started suddenly. The day Audrey is to marry Debray. How could I have forgotten it? He fairly groaned as he snatched his watch from his pocket. Three o'clock, he exclaimed dismally, and the wedding is at seven. Oh, if I could get to Paris in time, I can't even send her a telegram, for it would be held up by the censors until too late. You do love her, don't you, my boy? asked Little John, his eyes twinkling with humor and understanding. Cresson started with astonishment as his eyes met those of his friend. How did you know, doctor? he gasped. Knew it the day after you called in Paris, laughed Little John. You gave yourself away. Little things, you know, all my life I've been an observer. He walked away mysteriously, leaving the southerner in a state of dejection. Ten minutes later, the scientist returned, rubbing his hands together briskly. Get ready for a fast trip to Paris, he exclaimed. Quick trip? Why, doctor, how? asked the puzzled southerner. Airplane, of course, numbskull answered Little John waggishly. An automobile will call here for you in ten minutes. Colonel Dupin has arranged everything. A plane awaits you at Galliani Field. Two hours later, Cresson was hastening to Madame Chaumont's home in the Latin Quarter. He arrived just as the finishing touches were being made to Audrey's bridal costume, ten minutes before going to the church, when the ceremony was to be performed. It was most difficult for Cresson to break the news, and for a full two minutes he could not respond to the joyous greeting of the two women. But it was his duty, and glossing over the most harrowing details of the story, he told it from beginning to end. Madame Chaumont exhibited remarkable control, but Audrey, who was worn with the ordeal of awaiting marriage with the man she despised, was less able to bear up. She swooned, pale as death, as Cresson concluded his narrative. She recovered consciousness in the southerner's arms, her violet eyes widening as he pillowed her head of glorious gold on his arm. In one mad moment, Cresson threw restraint to the winds and pressed his lips to hers in a divine moment of bliss. Her arms stole around his neck, and joy surged within him as he felt his kisses being returned. It seemed as if the world stood still to listen to the caroling of a million joyous bird throats. Oh, Audrey, he breathed. I love you, can't you see? My happiness is in your hands. My future is yours. Be my wife, dear. Come to America with me, to Louisiana, where your mother and you will know no sorrow again. Forget the past. Awaiting you is the home of my forefathers. It is a great house. It is cheerful, beautiful, restful. The trees and landscape will ever remind you of La Belle France. Have you ever heard of New Orleans? Its French patois, its quaintness and charm? Say you will, dear. On condition, she replied, her eyes shyly seeking his, that I shall spend six months of every year in your beautiful Louisiana, and the other six months in La Belle France, always with you. You do not know, Miles, dear woman, what it means to be a French woman, to be exiled forever from her native land. Such a fate would be unsinkable. She nestled in his arms. Agreed, Crescent shouted happily. That is a wonderful plan. He lost no time in seeking Madame Chamon's consent, which she gave with the mingled tears of her blessing. The evening seemed to fly in the joyous little dinner in a café nearby, in honor of the event, seemed over in a flash. In the small hours of the morning, Cresson danced forth from the lift, seemingly on air. He came face to face with Dr. Littlejohn in the entrance. "'Why, doctor!' 
exclaimed the young man. How did you reach Paris so quickly? His astonishment was apparent. Congratulations, son, said Little John, stretching out his hand. You needn't tell me, I know. I followed you by a fast train, and here I am. I owe everything to you, doctor, began Cresson gratefully. You're the greatest, finest. Oh, forget that, laughed Little John. It was an experience to gladden the heart of any spook hunter in existence. And as the sailors say, you may lay to that. His face grew grave. Have you heard? He queried quietly. About Debray, you mean? Asked Cresson. Yes, said the doctor. He was seized by gendarme while dressing for his wedding. He put up a furious struggle, and for a time the officers had their hands full. He was raging and defiant in the Palais de la Justice, until confronted with the evidence. In the end, he signed a lengthy confession. Debray feared death after Chamon's discovery of his treachery. He waited for an opportunity to shoot the young Frenchman in the back, but this did not come. He had already wrecked the floodgate machinery, and had laid wires to blow up the magazine, and his opportunity to effect a double stroke came when Chamon and the thirty-three men were sent to the vault during the attack. The death of Major Callan and the final rush of the enemy left Debray in possession of the secret of Chamon's whereabouts. None except the Alsatian knew that the anteroom passage existed, and he slipped there during a lull to send part of the fort to destruction with his blasting machine. He resumed his post in the confusion that followed. No one was the wiser save those buried beneath the wreckage. Dying men alone knew that his act had cost them their lives in France its fortress. It was dramatic, Cresson. I reached the Palais just as Debray, coolly smoking a cigarette, was addressing his captors. Messieurs, he said, after all, what matters another victim to Madame Guillotine? The world goes on as usual, does it not? My death leaves but one more shade to curse it and the tunnels of Verdun. Debray's hearers were all so dumbfounded by his cold-blooded confession that for a moment they relaxed vigilance. It was the traitor's opportunity. Before anyone could stay him, the Alsatian had snatched a pistol from the holster of a guard and was springing to the center of the room. He pressed the weapon's muzzle to his temple. The guards ran forward in a confused mass, but too late. The pistol cracked and Debray crashed to the flags, dead by his own hand. Cresson shook his head slowly, but said nothing. Memories of Jules Chamon trooped across his vision in a dim procession. Memories of the Vosges. Memories of Verdun. Paris of wartime, and Paris of today. Dr. Littlejohn, observing his silence, understood. He pressed the younger man's arm and bade him good night. Walking slowly toward his quarters, Cresson heard, far down the boulevard, the cry of extras being vended by newsboys of the quarter. End of Part 8 End of The Whispering Tunnels by Stephen Backby